Welcome to Origins, a podcast about the money behind the money. This podcast is created by Notation, a first check venture capital firm based in Brooklyn, New York. We invest in amazing technical teams and projects in New York City on day zero. You can find us on Twitter at Notation Capital. This season of Origins is sponsored by Silicon Valley Bank and Cooley LLP. Silicon Valley Bank is the bank of the world's most innovative companies and their investors, with a dedicated practice for emerging managers. They've been friends and partners to Notation since the beginning. To learn more about SVB services, visit svb.com. Cooley LLP is the global law firm for tech, life sciences, and other high-growth industries. It's the world's most active venture capital law firm in forming funds and completing investments. We've worked with Cooley since the very beginning. They've helped us form both notation funds. We recommend them to all the startups that we work with and many of our VC peers as well. Learn more about the firm and check out its dedicated site for startups and investors at CooleyGo.com. Lindsay Larson is a managing director at Uvimco, the University of Virginia's endowment. At Uvimco, she oversees their venture capital investing, the growth equity investing practice, and also hedge fund investing. She was previously a director at Sequoia Heritage and Bluestem Asset Management, and she started her career at Goldman Sachs after graduating from UVA. Lindsay, thank you so much for being here. We really appreciate it. We're uh, traveling in, in San Francisco. This week, uh, we're here for the Sandana conference, which is exciting. Could you just tell us a little bit about yourself and your background and where you grew up? And I'll bug you about the rest in a minute. So I grew up in New England in a small town in Connecticut called Pomfret. I went on a full scholarship to a private boarding school in that town, and that gave me a really global perspective. My classmates were from 26 different countries, and wow. I didn't grow up in a family that was discussing investments at the dinner table. My parents right. are teachers, but from okay. a young age, I was interested in investing in business. Um, Why? Where do you think that came from? My grandfather started his own business. Hmm. He made boxes, like the boxes that like Johnson & Johnson Band-Aids come in or U.S. Surgical, and I would, on school vacations, go do hmm. random things around his plant and office. Mm-hmm. A good friend of mine in our little town, her dad was a stockbroker. That was always interesting. And just, it was interesting to me to think about businesses and their application to the world. I wanted to go to California for university. My mom said, no, she couldn't afford to fly me home for breaks. Wow. So I went to, um, I was fortunate and went to UVA in a different region, um, but I could still drive 10 hours and get home for breaks. And also UVA had an undergrad business school, McIntyre, and that was really exciting. Mm -hmm. Um, And so that was, um, that's kind of where my connection to UVA comes in. I got more of my foundation in investing there, had some great professors, including a guy named John Griffin, who was um, one of the original analysts at the original Tiger, and then started Hmm. his own investment firm, Blue Ridge Capital. Um, and had done some internships. I interned at a mutual fund company for two summers in Boston, Hmm. and I sold life and health insurance, um, which was really hard. Um, Cold calling wasn't very fun, but I learned a lot. And then I also interned at Goldman in their equities division in New York the summer of 2000 when things were at their peak um, and returned after I graduated in 2001 after the tech bus two months right. before 9-11 and worked in tech sales, um, which was a really interesting time. So it was like a sales uh, trading desk. Exactly. Basically. Okay. Yep. Got it. Um, and But our team was specialized in that we only covered technology. So okay. we had, I'd say, more touch points with hardware analysts and software analysts yep. and security and um yep. And it was pretty interesting that we didn't, in the two years I was there, we didn't do any secondary, any primary, we, and we only did one secondary deal, um, Polycom, the phone that is sometimes in the right. middle of conference rooms. Yeah. Um, and 9-11 happened and right. was short, not too far from our office. So right. that then I had the chance um, when I finished my analyst program to stay, but I also had the chance to go do something more entrepreneurial. So I went, um, moved back to Charlottesville and joined an investment firm that was starting up called Bluestem Partners. And how did that, was it like a professor that you had 
gotten to know or a student or something? It was a professor. I okay. didn't have him. Um, it's uh, Michael Bills founded the firm. Um, okay. I didn't have him as a professor, but I'd met him through recruiting at Goldman. And he had actually gone to UVA, then worked at Goldman hmm. in the equity risk carbon trading desk, and then been the eighth employee at Tiger Management in 86. Okay. Um, wow. And also had most recently before Bluestem been the CIO at Uvimco oh, wow. and taken his okay. first analyst as his partner. And that was where the connection kind of came hmm. in. Um, and it was just a great chance to learn and work for people that I could respect and admire. We set out to be excellent, to really focus on performance. We actually mostly invested in hedge fund managers. Over okay. time, 30% um, of our portfolio became invested in privates, but we didn't hmm. do real estate. We didn't do venture. Hmm. Um, we didn't do resources. Hmm. And um, so just, he, So he was the CIO of... UVA endowment, UVMCO, mm -hmm. he left to start what sounds like kind of a hedge fund and private equity fund to funds mm -hmm. and convinced you to move back down there and, and work for him. Yes. Cool. <laughs> and take a pay cut and all the risk. Like right. the electricity right. got shut off the first day I was right. in the office because the bill got sent to the wrong place. But it was really fun. Like we cool. built like how we would do our performance from the start before we even had the numbers saying, yeah. what information do we want to see? How do we want our brand to be out in the marketplace? We spent a lot of time on our logo and the colors right. in it. What were the big learnings from that experience? You were there for three eight, or four years? Eight years, Oh, eight actually. years. Wow. Yeah. Okay. So you really <laughs> got to see the firm built. Yeah. And I guess we're a part of building it. What were some of the big lessons learned over the course of that period where I guess you focused on investing in hedge funds and private equity, not mm -hmm. venture? Yeah. Well, Moneyball, also Michael Lewis's book came out in 03, the same okay. year we launched. And we were okay. kind of like, this is like what we're doing to pick huh. managers. Huh. And I actually think there's analogies to that in venture because sometimes you don't have more standardized data. Right. And so we would say these people are starting up and we don't have like easily, we have a lot of noisy data, mm -hmm. but let's like go see what statistics or like sometimes qualitative characteristics we think are the most important that may drive success mm -hmm. and try to solve for those. So it was really fun to be like building our brand from this, from the start saying, here's what's important to us. Yep. Like we've reprioritized um, trust and good partnership. And then secondarily, but very importantly, investment acumen. Um, and then other things that we lo would look at would be, you know, how someone structured their firm, how they think about their team, mm -hmm. what, how repeatable their investment process is. Mm -hmm. Are they in a geography that makes sense? Things that I think still apply today across right. asset classes, including some of which applies to venture. Right. Um, but it was fun to like. At the beginning, too, you see people really help you because they want you to succeed and you're not a threat. So I think that, like, some people who've been very successful, it's harder because everyone's trying to compete with you versus right. age right. you. Um, uh, we were always a small team and intended to be that way, but being part of the hiring process and the review process and thinking about, like, the firm culture and values and setting that were really important things in terms of how we operated. Right. What were the most important? I mean, we were obviously going to talk about venture a bunch yeah. uh, over the next, you know, 40 minutes, but I'm just curious, what were some of the most important indicators of investment acumen and investment process in, you know, hedge fund and private equity land? Sure. So I would say if someone said you can have a pitch book and only look at two pages, I would take, um, if they had a, any bit of a track record, I would take the track yep. record and I'd take their bio and the track record because Mr. Market's really the only, um, I guess, objective um, judge. And so I'd want to have that. I think in venture, you need an even longer time horizon than you do in public mm. markets. In public right. markets, you can really see over a like three to five years. In venture, you don't start to see until at the very earliest six to seven years and arguably longer. Um, and then bio, because um, like patterns of people who are excellent tend to stay excellent hmm. and like exhibit signs of that excellence and good decision making throughout their lives and their careers. Hmm. So there are exceptions and people sometimes learn great 
lessons from bad experiences and those can happen. And like, that's not a, that can be a great thing, but also you want to see sort of progression um, and some, like whether it's oftentimes investing can be an apprentice business. So did someone learn from a great mentor or did they get the right cultural values at places they've been a part of? You were at a Blue Stem for eight years, and then you went to join Sequoia Heritage, I guess here in San Francisco, correct? Um, in Menlo Park. Oh, in Menlo yeah. Park. How did that come about? Sure. So I was moving to San Francisco for personal reasons. Okay. And did a and Blue Stem was like, great, you can't be, you sure. can't work for us from the Bay Area, but <laughs> right. um, good luck. Yeah. And sort of did a wider search. One thing that really appealed to me about Sequoia Heritage was that they were investing globally in all asset mm. classes. And as I said, we didn't do, I didn't really look at financial statements from a real estate firm at Blue Stem and didn't right. do venture and no resources. And Sequoia Heritage, we were generalists. And so while I did still a lot of work in hedge funds, I got exposed to venture and to real estate. And that was really fun. What the heck is Sequoia Heritage? (laughs) So I joined a year after they launched. So they launched in 2010. I joined in 2011. And I think what started as a place for partners at Sequoia to put their personal capital um, had become a place that was more of an outsourced CIO model hmm. and um, was a place that tech entrepreneurs who'd achieved a, a, an exit or a certain hmm. level of success could put some of their capital there in more of an endowment style firm Interesting. or even small and other endowments and foundations yeah. could also be so there. So essentially acted over time like a multifamily office that started with a lot of the Sequoia partners and grew over time outside exactly. of that. And it and really is set up like from an investment standpoint, when I was there, it was more of an institutional, like the portfolio, I would say, would look not dissimilar from many endowments yeah. um, in terms of its asset allocation and asset yeah. classes. Yeah. And so you went there to originally focus on, I assume, hedge funds and private equity like you had done at Bluestem. Mostly hedge funds. Mostly hedge funds. Because we just did private co-invest at Bluestem. So those looked more like direct deals than um, like what you'd consider buyout or maybe a little bit of growth. Um, So I did that, but knowing it was a generalist model and a small team where we'd get exposure to everything. What were your first experiences and exposure to, to venture, which I imagine... There were many experiences there over, over. I think you were there for four years. Yeah, three years. Three yeah. years. And obviously in Menlo Park, I assume there was a lot of venture stuff. Yeah. yeah. So, well, one, having a pretty close seat to one of the best, in my opinion, one of the sure. best venture firms in the world was sure. just a, a really amazing opportunity and getting to see the intensity and the focus with which the guys on the venture and growth side operated. And Sequoia Heritage had some sort of access and look into Sequoia itself. Um, we could invest. And we also were in, okay. we, were, um, we officed with them. Oh, so okay. I'd okay. see them so every day for lunch and right. yeah, and offsites. We right. had shared global offsites. Okay, um, got it. So well, it was, that's cool. Yeah, really, really cool. And then as a, fir- as a um, Sequoia Heritage, we couldn't, we didn't often invest in a lot of the really established, I guess, I guess more brand names, if you will, because there was a, while we had a wall, there was fear that there wasn't hmm. a wall. And so Sequoia's so- competitors were somewhat <laughs> sensitive to having, I guess, all the Sequoia partners through Sequoia Heritage invest in their firms. That makes, exactly. that makes sense. Right. So I'd hmm. say our strategy tended to be into more managers that I wouldn't call them on the periphery, but were not those bigger established mm-hmm. brands yep. that were um, more up and coming managers yep. that may be in like regions or exploiting a sector that wasn't as generalist. Yep. Um, and so um, that was a really great learning experience for me to get to evaluate those, see what you look at. That was different than like we didn't have, we can pulling information on private companies and looking at right. what they're evaluating is different than right. looking at public right. managers. How did that portfolio grow over time? I mean, it was started in 2011. I'm guessing, was there a seed program or it was mostly... What 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 did the venture program ultimately look like over there? It, so I think they started it before I got in 2010. Okay. And today I'm actually not sure what, okay. where it is today, but at the time we would do, we kind of had a broader asset allocation with sizing within that for managers like 
public side being probably sized a little bit larger than private mm-hmm. opportunities. Um, and we started by backing managers, more emerging managers, not dissimilar from what we do at Uvimco. Um, and so uh, I don't know that there was a like, this could get to a certain, there wasn't like every year you have a certain amount to deploy into venture. It was very bottoms up. If you found something great that you saw had big return potential with partners you could trust, you would deploy there. And and like the same challenge we have at Evimco, most of those strategies are capacity constrained. So it was smaller investments, but it included things in the U.S., included things in China, other emerging markets. Yeah. And Sequoia Heritage is still going strong today, correct? As far as I know, yeah. Yeah. I'm really excited to talk about Evimco because... Indeed, uh, we haven't had a ton of endowment managers on on Origins, and uh, and so uh, you joined Uvimco a year or two ago. Um, in the end of March of fifteen. So uh, okay, so three years. Yeah, and you're the managing director of the private program. Is that correct? I actually co-lead venture with my okay. colleague Caitlin Fitzmaurice, and then I co-lead long short. And Caitlin Sarge oh, wow. and I co-lead growth. So kind of all Interesting. equities, but no buyout and no real okay. estate equity. So you co-lead venture, <laughs> long, short hedge funds. Yep. And growth. Mm-hmm. Okay, that's an interesting combination. It's an interesting combination. I don't think we've seen on Origins yet. <laughs> I don't get much sleep. <laughs> um, and um, you were saying before we started, you, you moved to back to Charlottesville for a year. You're you're and you're based in SF, which I imagine mm-hmm. is somewhat unusual, also for most yes. of the endowment team. <laughs> yes. Tell us a little bit about the decision to 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 go back there. So I mentioned that I went, uh, went to UVA. Right. I feel like I got my investing foundation there. I owe a lot to UVA. So in that sense, it was a really easy decision and a conscious choice right. to go back and do this work on behalf of a mission I really care about. Yep. Um, at the time, I also think about my time and time being our most limited resource. Like it was a place that I felt good about spending my time on. Um, And the first year I was back there, I co-taught a class, which was really fun. It's been harder. I would like to get that. It was credit and risk Um, from my boss at Bluestem. I had TA'd it in the past. And then, and so super interesting. We had some cases on Lending Club and other things that were really Puerto Rico debt, like things that were relevant at the time. Um, And one of these days... (laughs) <laughs> Many years, you'll leave the UVA endowment and there'll be some analyst up in New York that will go, uh, you know, convince you to hire them. <laughs> <laughs> I hope so. Maybe. Actually, that'd be great. Yeah. And so uh, also at the time, um, our CIO had been my equities professor undergrad, like a decade and a half prior. So knowing him was helpful yeah. in terms of the decision to go back. And I also think one of the few structural competitive advantages in investing is having a longer time horizon and endowments just right. structurally inherently have that. Yeah. And also it's the ethos of the, of even like it's kind of institutionally part of the memory and the way we work. Um, and I think that's really important to long-term success in investing. Could you tell us a little bit just about the high level numbers and goals of, of Uvimco? Sure. So we have a couple, two objectives. One is to preserve the purchasing power of the endowment. So, and that we do that by producing returns that are above um, the spending rate plus inflation. Okay. And the spending rate has a, you know, a spending slight, rate of the university. Of the university. Right. And the spending rate has a slight band, but let's say it's around 5%. And then inflation, our number that we use, which is a particular number that a lot of data goes into it, but right now we're assuming it's around like 8. Two or uh, sorry, three point two or three point three. So, our hurdle, if you will, is like eight point two or eight point three. Just to basically stay at par, you've got to do eight point eight percent a year and sorry, eight point three, eight point three percent a year in returns. Yeah, and if inflation's lower, that changes. But although that doesn't necessarily factor in donations, right? That does not, and we don't factor that in when we're doing all of our asset. We do factor it in in some models, but actually into that we kind of try to keep it. Why is that? Um, Just to be more more conservative. Okay. Um, And uh, but I do think that is a fact that that. Versus some foundations that are just constantly spending and don't have it inflows. Yep. That's a benefit to us as yep. we think about managing and rebalancing. But 
we don't try to factor that in because they're also uncertain and some of those could be restricted and some of those could be spent. Right. So it's not something that we sort of factor in. Got it. So it's like a startup, you know, has, um, I don't know, X months of runway and they just like assume no revenue just to be super conservative <laughs> or something like that. Probably. Okay. Yeah. How big is the endowment total? It's about $9.5 billion. Okay. So... 8.3% on 9.5 billion is, I can't do the math, but call it like $700 million a year <laughs> is, the, is the goal. Yeah. And obviously that doesn't have to be necessarily fully realized, right? Like a lot mm-hmm. of the positions, I assume it's particularly in venture and private equity are illiquid. Exactly. So marked each year essentially. Yes. So how do you go about doing that? So we follow, we have an investment policy statement, but we also invest, um, like most endowments, a lot of our exposure is via equities. And we have allocations to public equities, long, short equity, credit, like non-correlated hedge funds, um, venture capital, um, uh, growth equity, buyout, resources, and real estate. Okay. Um, And we have a team that does that. Some of us are more generalists like myself and some are more specialized. And our goal is to, we do it via partnering with who we hope to be the like best investment managers in the world. And we do the, our portfolio is predominantly invested via active managers. Um, we'll do some co-investments alongside our managers, but that's the way we go about executing and have a team of about 15 people on the investment side that go out to achieve that. And the other factor I said, there's a few things we also keep in mind, short-term spending. So we don't want to be in a position where we're having to sell, be a seller into uh, difficult markets or be a, like we would rather be a provider of liquidity than a taker of liquidity. And so we're also factoring in short-term spending and not in that risk in contrast to like being comfortable with the long-term volatility to achieve our long-term returns. So in other words, if I'm understanding that correctly, you have a super, super, super long-term investment horizon, obviously, (laughs) but there are also just short-term realities of the university needing to spend capital for projects and other things that they're going to do and build and invest in. Exactly. Okay. And so understanding that through the lens of the investment profile is you're constantly managing, I guess, short-term liquidity needs with an infinite investment time horizon. Exactly. And also as we back and fund illiquid or private managers, what those kind of, uh, you can't perfectly um, map out draws and redistributions. Right. So if 8.3% is the target, do you then, and you mentioned a bunch of different asset classes that the, that the endowment vets um, across, do you, then drill like one level down from that 8.3% and say, all right, venture should target 20 and public equity should target six or, 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 or whatever it is. We have a lot of internal models um, and some of those involve factors. Some of those involve like alpha estimates, which really are like, that's really hard to estimate Right for us, particularly in venture, how we think about it, like Caitlin and I say, in doing venture, what we want to achieve with every manager we invest with is a 3x money and money multiple um, over the life of the fund we invest in. And ventures where we take risk and where we want to get higher returns. Yep. And so all of our models have the venture beta is higher than other asset classes. And it's, it. we're comfortable with volatility and risk. Yep. But that's kind of our, like, if we think of venture, that's how we think of it. And we think of multiple is the right way to think of it as opposed to even an IRR, although we do like also look at DPIs, but that's, right. you need to take a super long view on those. Right. Why is that? Um, just because that to us is like the ultimate return of the fund, like how much capital someone returns yep. from money in the ground. Yeah. And why is that more important than thinking about it on a IRR or percentage returns basis? I guess it's more pure and it's probably IRR is important too. So I don't mean to, because if someone yeah. got to a three X, but it took them 20 years, right, right, um, right. that's less compelling than right. someone doing it over a shorter period of time. Yeah. So I shouldn't say it's the IRR is not, not important, yeah. but I think we also think about like realizations ultimately, as mm-hmm. opposed to just marks. Mm-hmm. Um, and sort of take the long view on that. How do you manage your time across 
the three areas that you just described. Are there certain areas where you think are bigger drivers for UVA where you naturally spend more time? Um, in terms of like value creation and alpha over UVA's longer history, like the prior decade plus, um, growth equity has been a big driver. Public equity has been a big driver. Um, as a, I, I do try to think of my time in terms of these asset classes as portions of our um, exposure. Long short equity is about 19.5% of our exposure, venture is five, but venture requires a disproportionate amount of time hmm. for the capital you can put in the ground. But we also think venture can differentiate endowments. And so we actually, as a as a an institution, have a lot more resources in venture than you would expect given that it's 5% of our portfolio. Right. We have right. two co-heads, our teams, other folks on our investment team spend time on it with Caitlin and I. Um, we we very much value it. And so- Why? Um, because you can deploy a small amount of capital and get to great returns. It's also one of the few ways we think you can differentiate your returns because the dispersion in venture returns is so wide. Hmm. That being early, getting big opportunities that happen, if you capture like the um, GPS chip that went into the iPhone and, to, right. and all of the businesses that were created from that, or if something huge comes about from blockchain or healthcare, um, it's a way you can capture really big upside. Right. And also the firms have significant potential to be big drivers that... We think there's a lot of differentiation that can happen versus the, I'd say in like a, on the public side, differentiation is there's a smaller range of mm -hmm. outcomes. Mm -hmm. So you joined uh, uh, Uvimco in 2015. I assume they already, just to drill into venture a little bit specifically, um, I assume they already have a portfolio of managers there. I'm just curious as a new co-head of that practice, how you think about inheriting an existing venture portfolio and evaluating that and then thinking about how to evolve that over time. Well, I think one of the huge benefits on the private side of um, uh, inheriting an existing portfolio is we don't have to go through a J curve. And we also have some vintage hmm. diversification. So explain um, that a little bit because so, I'm not sure... I think I understand it, but yeah. I just want to make sure that the origins folks do too. So um, when you commit to a private fund, they you commit a certain amount, say $10 million, and but that capital all doesn't get called day one. But we still have to sort of reserve that we could get capital calls against that $10 million. Yep. So there's a period of time where y you as the venture manager are finding those opportunities and deploying the capital. But while that's happening, that kind of capital that's not invested yet could be a bit of a drag on returns because it's not money in the ground that's working for you. Got it. But you also are reserving some capital to for those calls that right. you get against that. So if you're building a portfolio from scratch and you don't have existing managers, there essentially there's a lot of money going out the door. Mm -hmm. There's more reserve that you can't invest in other things. And so the returns, the J-curve, J I think, is typically a, um, uh, an indication that the returns in the first few years of a typical venture portfolio don't look so good. Yeah. yeah. And it's just like you're getting fees taken against your capital. Yep. And then also in venture, and you know, but like the funds that aren't, or the companies that you back that aren't going to work tend to fail faster. Like you try yep. to have them, so you might have write-offs earlier. Yep. But then the real big winners, you start to really see them six to seven years in. Yep. So that's another factor in that. And so because there's an existing portfolio there, a lot of the funds are already more mature and there's liquidity both going back to UVA in addition to in investing just there's money going in the door in addition to going out the door. Yes. Okay. And that we're in a world where um, relationships and brand and reputation really matter. Yeah. I think it's a competitive advantage and really a great help that Uvimco has been investing in venture managers for three right. decades. Right. And also has done emerging managers. And that's a core component of the, of the philosophy and strategy. And so I think that's also a competitive advantage. Although you then have that legacy. So you've right. got to live up to that reputation too. So how do you, I assume you knew a bunch of the managers already mm -hmm. given your experience at Sequoia Heritage and, but how do you like 
get in the seat and figure out what the heck is going on. Sure. And we actually read white papers, which there aren't that many, but there are some. We built out, Caitlin and I like um, did a framework that we shared with our team in the spring of 17 when one of our colleagues were retired, where we said, here's how, just so our team knows, like, here's how we're thinking and approaching venture. And some of it was based on UVIMCO's history and experience in the asset class. Also just surveying the landscape and then reading. And we kind of said sourcing, decision-making and ecosystems. And when we meet with managers, we'll always talk to you about how they source and yep. what their strengths are and, and weaknesses there. Decision making is harder to evaluate because some like we're often backing people where you don't get a long runway to see their decision making. Yep. And I assume that includes like investment process. Exactly. Yeah. Um, and then ecosystems are like where they're operating, like the Bay Area, China, Israel, Europe. Yeah. Um, yeah. And we have a framework for how we look at ecosystems. And then underneath all of that, we also look at the partnership and partnership dynamics, how a firm uses technology, um, how they build their portfolio, like how they think about um, ownership, which we think is really important as it fits into their um, portfolio model and a a number of other things that we kind of say feed up into our conviction. When you joined, was the venture portfolio already at the target allocation for the fund or was it maybe under the target so that you could immediately add new managers? Or I guess my question is, as you evolve the portfolio of, of venture managers... If you were to add to that, does that mean that you have to take away from existing relationships? In venture, no. I wouldn't say that it's kind of like you get a certain amount, a budget for venture every year or even have a, we want to target X. Venture for UVMCO has been 5% for a really long time. I would guesstimate if like we could, it would actually be a bit higher because of uh, the return characteristics and yeah. uh, of the space that I described earlier. But um, it's the the strategies are usually capacity constrained. So that's where we run what into challenges, mean? meaning that there's like a rule of, I mean, some funds, they say, if you manage north of 250 million, it's hard to get to returns. I talked about ownership, basically. And at seed stage, a lot of funds are small and under $100 million. And when you do the portfolio math and you try to get to, you need X number of companies to return the fund. You need X number to return half the fund, X number to return a quarter of the fund. The bigger the denominator you're working with, the more winners you need and bigger out. And and getting to ownership in a world that's getting more competitive with more funds is harder. So typically funds will say we can only deploy say, right. 75 million. And so right. if we've kind of done all the work on our side and said our ideal sizing per fund would be 25 million, right. that leaves us in a tough spot. Right. So we've taken the tact of being really um, opportunistic and flexible And we'll invest small amounts, smaller amounts that maybe some of our peers would do, saying Mm. we want to be with the best managers. And our hope is that we build the relationship and grow over time. Mm. But even if we can't, we still want to invest. So that's interesting. So so, so just so I understand it, so that means that if you meet an amazing manager and maybe the math doesn't quite work just in terms of Uvimco's need to invest a certain amount of money, you might still move forward just to build the relationship and that just because that firm might grow. And so it won't necessarily affect the 5% target exactly. that much. That's exactly it. That's really interesting. Why, why do you think, because we do hear from, I mean, I know you can't speak for other endowments, but we do hear all the time from other endowments that they just say, look, you know, if we can't write a $50 million check, then it just doesn't make sense. So the fund needs to be, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars of size and or it just doesn't make sense. Why this approach? Because it does feel unique, particularly for the large yeah. endowments. Well, and I mentioned earlier, time is our most limited resource. Right. And that's probably most endowments. We right. all are really probably right. overly diversified. So it's the same amount of time for our operations and accounting right. team. Whether, to do a million dollar check versus $25 billion. Yeah. Right. And so I think that's why some have taken that attack. We're staffed in a way that we've said we can be opportunistic and at the risk of spending our time on things that are less. But even if you are in a smaller size, since we're looking for outcomes that are 3x plus, they can really move the needle and matter, actually, in the overall returns. I think it 
if this were other asset classes, it's more questionable. But mm. in venture, it it mm. is worth it to us still to do the small That's investments. That's really cool. I love that. Obviously, as a biased, very <laughs> small fund. How do you... So let's say you back... I mean, it seems like you guys are willing to back more opportunistic, smaller firms and emerging managers even. How do you decide to not continue that relationship? Because I assume you're running a lot more experiments than the typical Mm -hmm. endowment. And so I assume there will also be more failures Mm -hmm. just by the nature of working with more experimental new firms. How and when do you decide not to continue investing in that firm? That's one of the hardest things. Our dream would be to invest and be there forever. Yeah, forever. Many, right. many funds and right. um, it's a relationship business and it's, we invest a ton of work and then for it not to continue is really hard and not our ideal. Um, as I mentioned, we're really excited about the China ecosystem in early hmm. stage. One thing that's challenging for us there is just observing the turnover amongst GPs within hmm. partnerships, um, it, which is hard as outsiders to understand. And then also they are raising there are subsequent funds that seem to keep getting really large. Hmm. Um, and that's just harder for us as we think hmm. about wanting to be there for the long run. Um, I would say we do look at that, as I mentioned, the portfolio math. So if someone got to a fund size that we kind of said, this seems like, well, one, we'll take into account the market and maybe there is a justification in terms of what's happening in the marketplace and why they need to, um, write bigger checks and get bigger ownership early or um, increase the fund size. There's a good rationale. Um, but if it's like, if it seems like it's more fees or is going to size them out of their sweet spot, that's much harder. Mm. Um, it's harder to figure that out. So we'll try mm. to give someone a longer runway and say, well, we'll figure that out for the next fund. Mm. Um we do focus on partnerships. So if there was turnover at the partnership level that wasn't healthy, that's another factor we yep. could really consider. Yep. Um, but the, it's, um, the intention isn't to have short-term relationships. Right. right. So you mentioned China. So it sounds like you invest outside the U.S. in yes. terms of venture. I'm curious yeah, where, where you do find the most um, interesting areas in venture today, whether that's from a stage perspective or geo perspective or, you know, something else maybe I'm not thinking about. Sure. Or maybe sector. Yeah, and I'm curious to hear what you... growth separately. So I was like still focused sure. mostly on... And sure. so we're probably... How do you define growth, by the way? Um, growth for us is later, so like probably B or beyond, even beyond B, probably okay. C and beyond. Okay. Um, uh, and we are just observing all the data that companies are staying private longer and companies yeah. that have the revenues and like the businesses that in other environments could yeah. be public or not. Um, but that's right. sort of a um, separate for us than our venture. Yeah. Um, and where we're um, seeing, so I mentioned we study ecosystems. Um, China has come back as being really compelling right. in that they have great engineering talent and a lot of engineers, um, even relative to the U.S. The cost of employing an engineer there is much less mm. than its U.S. equivalent um, of 1.4 billion population going to yeah. 1.7 yeah. versus um, the U.S. at a fraction of that. Um, we also think that you could see emerging global global technology leaders there. Hmm. Um, competition is very intense versus competition for the large U.S. tech companies. So we expect there to be just a lot of market cap potential hmm. created. Right. Um, in like payments, you have like under 100 million users in the U.S. versus like over 700 right. million in China. Yeah. Like when we get into the data of all this, it's yeah. sort of mind blowing. The mind-blowing. U.S. looks like a <laughs> small little cute market. <laughs> yeah. Right. It, they, people spend 30% of their discretionary incomes on private education, which has right. a lot of technology angles. Um, mm-hmm. So we are pretty excited about yeah. the opportunity there. Um, and has UVA had an his- historical relationships there or this is a newer part of the venture practice? I'd say this is newer. Okay. Um, UVA's had great relationships there in growth and the public side. Um, and for us in terms of venture, China is only like 10% of our venture portfolio or 50 mm. basis points of our total portfolio. Mm. Um, and so it's an area we've been focusing on um, since we did that work in the summer of 17. How do you how do you practically go do that? Like, does that mean that you're on a 
plane all the time there trying to meet with people or? We have Mandarin speakers on our team, which okay. does help. We've discussed if we should have someone on the ground, which mm. we don't have, but that's up for mm. discussion. Our team travels pretty frequently. Um, a bunch of us are headed back in November, um, but we probably should be there even more often. It's mm. frankly really hard as outsiders. Yeah. One of the important pieces of our diligence is we call um, founders and company executives, yep. both private companies and public companies for our whole portfolio. And that's where it helps that we have Mandarin speakers, but also we're outsiders. So are right. we getting the right information we need to make good decisions? And so we're approaching it with caution and hmm. um, um, and trying to like just become, gain more expertise from local yep. experts. You said there's 15 managers on the UVA endowment. 15 investment. 15 investment yeah. professionals. Why not double the team? So investing, I think, is one of those businesses where it, um, you get large, account, big economies of scale with a small team and double, like sometimes it's already a big group to have around the table when mm. our investment committee meets weekly, mm. um, that it would be really challenging mm. to have okay. like that many voices in the room yep. on a... Um, weekly basis. Yeah. Yep. Um, so th I think we can grow, but there's a limitation to that right. growth. Okay. That makes sense. Same way, I guess, a, a partnership at a venture firm, what you want to keep it small, it doesn't get too noisy. And right. Yeah. Okay. Any other areas that are, that are, you think, particularly interesting today outside of, I guess, and you're talking about early stage venture in China, yes. right? Yeah. yeah. Um, how big are the funds, by the way, you're talking, like when you say they're getting really big, I mean, they seem to be getting really big here in the U.S. Are we similar scale? Even bigger oh, and wow. even fast. So really? in the U.S., maybe a fund will go up in size by 20, you know, 10 or 20% right. in its next fundraise. There right. we're seeing doubling and tripling. There are funds here though that'll go from, 20 to 100 pretty quickly. That's true. But at that scale, so I'm talking to funds that maybe were 250 going to a billion. Oh, wow. Okay. Between fund two and fund three. Okay. Got it. Companies are going public earlier there too, correct? Yes. Like they're getting liquidity sooner. Yes. Is, is my understanding. Yeah. Yeah. And you're seeing that with both the exchanges in China and in Hong Kong and in the U, and then also yep. companies listing in the US. Yep. One area, like just on the ecosystem, yeah. we, we did a lot of work thinking Southeast Asia looked really interesting, and mm. we've pulled back from that work, thinking it actually is a lot more like Europe. You have 600 million people, but it's mm. island countries, yep. different religions, different governments, different languages. And yep. um, we think down the road it could be really promising, but today we've kind of said it doesn't have as many of the important tells, like they're still more nascent in the engineering talent um, than China or the U.S. We also really still like the U.S., even though valuations are higher in California, we still think it's an um, important place for talent. In, um, and we're kind of, we have exposure to New York and California um, in the U.S. How do you think about the early, or really not early, but I guess, how do you think about the private markets broadly today? So in growth, we think things look pretty, um, like valuations are pretty high. Yeah. Um, we're also far, um, pretty far into a, a bull market cycle yeah. on the public side, which is important for those companies. If they're going public or getting acquired in early stage. We actually don't, we, we think we should invest through cycles and um, because returns can be episodic because the dispersion between the top desk and bottom in funds is so large, we don't think we should um, change our investment pacing due hmm. to the market cycle. So in early stage, we're sort of always looking and always, I think great companies are built through up, uh, through troughs and peaks in, in market cycles. And that's how we approach it. How do you think about SoftBank in this market? So we've gotten takes um, from our managers. We've gotten both positive and negative takes. Um, I've seen some of the statistics on what certain companies within their portfolio, what valuations they need to reach to be profitable for them to be able to get their incentive the way it's structured from their clients. And those are pretty lofty. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, and they're they're coming in at lofty valuations. They're also sometimes changing industries, like they're like the money they put into WAG really changed like that landscape for the 
pet care and pet sitting yep. companies. Um, and so I think that's a, like, you have to really pay attention to them and their time horizon is often quite different and maybe their return expectations could be different than some other firms. And we're seeing some other funds go out and raise big pools of capital. Um, and in China, we're hearing, you know, the companies are wanting people to just bring more capital and pay higher valuations. And mm. Yeah, you know, I always think about SoftBank through the lens of the U.S. market, but I guess they're investing everywhere, right? So I guess they're impacting pretty much the private markets globally. A lot of, there are some yeah. regions it seems like they're staying away from, but there, mm. I think, is potential everywhere. And so... I think uh, some cases they've been like a great exit. Like I think they were really helpful to Flipkart um, and the mm -hmm. ultimate uh, majority acquisition mm -hmm. by Walmart there. So I think um, they've been both a positive force and are like would be a compelling takeout for some people, but also yeah. they're creating risk in terms of their potential entry into certain players within one sector. Um, and is, is there a factor that people have to pay attention to? I'm curious, you know, you've been through a number of different organizations now that are investing in the private markets. And I'm sure, you know, lots of the other either endowment managers or fund to fund managers and other folks at lots of these other organizations, whether it's fund to funds or endowments or family offices. I'm curious, and it sounds like you do a lot of your own bottoms-up research and work at UVA. I'm curious how much you trade notes and um, research and collaborate with other similar folks, maybe that's at other endowments or institutions when you're trying to make some of these decisions. So as time has gone on, I've collaborated, like, just um, traded notes, I think, less and less with peers at other allocators. Um, there are some that I have like hold in really high regard. And um, we also, I think, are really um, friendly and collaborative. And if people call us, we'll chat um, and try to be helpful also for trying to really be thoughtful about a great manager's capacity. We want great people that are as long-term as we are alongside of yeah. us. We might try to like collaborate, like get them to come in and invest yeah. alongside of us. But I also, I think in investing, you have to be really comfortable standing alone. And you have to be really comfortable sometimes being contrarian and you have to be just comfortable making your own decisions. And everyone has a very different portfolio, very different objectives, sometimes um, different constraints, different um, needs. And so, trying to base our decisions or um, getting too much leaning from other allocators who have different incentives and portfolios, I think can be really risky. So I would collaborate. Maybe it could be more along the lines of like, let's have better governance here or let's like be helpful. And in doing so, it's better to partner to be helpful to the best outcome for everyone. But otherwise, I think it's a little bit, I don't want to chase other people's um, conviction or ideas. Like we really try hard to do primary research and build our own conviction, which sometimes means standing alone. Although then yeah. we'll look around and we'll say, oh, well, people we respect a lot got here, but they got here independently too. Mm. How competitive is it? I, I mean, it's gotten yeah. very competitive for venture to, you know, win the deal and compete. And it's very, there's a lot of capital in the market. It's crowded. Is it just as competitive from the allocator's perspective, from the LP perspective? Since I've been at Uvimco and it's gotten even more competitive. And I right. would think we are in a position to compete really well. Right. Um, I think we serve a really great mission that a lot of um, venture managers and other can relate to. And w one challenge we have is we have fewer UVA grads than maybe some of our peer universities in technology hmm. or in venture. But I still think we, on the whole, because of the mission we serve, do appeal and fit that. But also we have been edged out of things that we've been really excited about because... People ha can just have a world where they can choose and yeah. capacity is constrained. And so we found it to be just increasingly competitive. And, and we're sort of being pushed to operate in a world where you're having to make decisions earlier right. and be ahead of the game and kind of figure out who you may want to commit to well, well ahead of when someone's out raising a fund. Yeah. So we're yeah. just trying to work hard and, and stay competitive. 
What do the next five to 10 years look like? I'm assuming you're at UVMCO five to 10 years from now. Like, What are your hopes and goals over the next number of years as you continue to manage you know, investments across those three areas that we discussed? So I would hope that we have these really long-term relationships that we've um, keep like have continued um, relationships with our existing managers that we're really excited about, continue to build with new managers and have a really long runway, um, continue to focus on excellent risk-adjusted returns that we do capture some of those next big areas, whether it's blockchain or healthcare and synthetic biology or automation and robotics or things that we aren't even, that are quantum computing, yeah. things we're not, that are still very much on the cusp of what next. And um, and so I hope we just capture some of that and also have partnerships we're really proud of and people that we have great relationships with and that we feel good about from like an integrity and character standpoint representing the university who also want to generate great returns and get their capital alongside ours and some other missions um, to make, generate more scholarships and more faculty that are creating more people that go out and do good in the world. So that's kind of our long-term goal. Amen. Lindsay, (laughs) thank you so much for doing this. I, I really, really appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks so much. This podcast was created by Nick Charles and Alex Lines, partners at Notation Capital. Notation is a first check venture capital firm in New York. We work with technical founding teams in the trenches from day zero. You can find us on Twitter at Notation Capital. Thanks to Cooley for sponsoring this episode. Cooley LLP is the global law firm for tech, life sciences, and other high-growth industries. It is the world's most active venture capital law firm in forming funds and completing investments. At Notation, we love working with Cooley and recommend them to all the companies we work with. Learn more about the firm at Cooley.com and check out its dedicated site for startups and investors, CooleyGo.com. We'd also like to thank Silicon Valley Bank. SVB is the bank of the world's most innovative companies and their investors. Their experts help innovators, enterprises, and investors move their bold ideas forward. Tap into the experience and connections of the SVB team for advice on strategic, operational, and tactical issues and limited partner insights. Silicon Valley Bank is a member of the FDIC. If you like this episode, please share and remember to tag it with the hashtag OpenLP. We'd also like to thank Ben Glaway, who is our amazing audio engineer. You should work with him. You can find Ben on Twitter at visible underscore sound.